this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey there, it's John Warlow. Listen, if you're brand new to Built to Sell Radio, welcome. It's good to have you along for the ride. We've been doing this show now for five years. I've interviewed literally a different entrepreneur every week for the past five years, and I've taken some of their best practices, their their tips and tricks and negotiation hacks, and distilled them all into a field guide. It's a book called The Art of Selling your business. And it is a little bit of a recipe card for you to punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating with an acquirer. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to this special edition of Built to Sell Radio. It's called Built to Sell Intel, where we break down the last month that was on Built to Sell Radio. We interviewed four amazing guests last year, excuse me, last month. And Dr. Jeremy Weiss is my partner in crime today. Uh, Jeremy has interviewed thousands of entrepreneurs at Rise 25. And we're going to flip the script a little bit. And Jeremy is going to interview me about the four interviews that uh, we did for Built to Sell Radio last month. So Jeremy, over to you. John, thanks for having me. I'm excited about this episode because we're going to recap some of the biggest takeaways from last month. Also, you know, we'll overlay your thoughts and advice, which I'm excited to hear because you ask amazing questions, you listen really intently, but I don't get to hear your advice on the interview. So this is going to be especially valuable for everyone. And if you are here and you don't know John or his work, which I assume most people do, but John Worrell is the founder of the Value Builder System. It's a simple software for building the value of a company. It's used by thousands and thousands of businesses worldwide, and the Value Builder System incorporates several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder Score. If you haven't taken it, you should. I mean, I've, I've taken it. Both my business partner and I have taken it. It's offered by a global network of independent advisors known as Certified Value Builders. So those businesses that achieve a value builder score of 90 or greater are worth double the average performing business. And his best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books of 2011 and has been translated in 12 languages. John, everyone I talk to not only has read it once, but more than once. I mean, oh, that's people generous. read it multiple times, including myself, actually. And John is obviously You're in the, the most remedial of, learning category. Yeah, maybe I'm a slow learner, <laughs> or maybe I just find it fascinating. Well, <laughs> you know what? I found out. I found out yesterday that it's been translated into Mongolian. No word of a lie. I'm like Mongolian. Really? That's a huge market. <laughs> so who knows? Hopefully, someone <laughs> from there is on this webinar and listening. Yeah, it'd be good. But, um, it'd be great. I'd love to you know, hear. you're yeah. also obviously we're listening to this. You're the host of the Built to Sell Radio, which is ranked by Forbes and one of the world's ten best podcasts for business owners. You also wrote the Automatic Customer, which is creating a subscription business in any industry. And you completed the trilogy with the art of selling your business, which is winning strategies and secret hacks for exiting at the top. And you know, prior to that, if people don't know, you also started and exited four companies including one acquired by a public company. And you can check all this out at builttosell.com, but also builttosell.com slash radios where you can get these podcasts. And I would suggest listening to these in, in 
their entirety. And the first one is with James Preble. And, you know, John, you interviewed James Preble. He co-founded Palladium Digital, which is a consultancy helping companies think about their digital strategy. And the company experimented with various business models until they landed on helping private equity groups get a return on their investment. And the private equity groups hired Palladium to perform digital due diligence, as you could say, and they reached 1 million pounds in annual revenue pretty quickly. So, John, starting with that, what did you like about James's story? Oh, so much to like. I mean, young, you know, young guy, what a cool niche they found. In the, in the early days, they were kind of, I think in James, you know, his own admission, uh, they were floundering a little bit, right? Like they were digital strategists. And frankly, right now, everybody's a digital strategist, right? Like there's there's so many people masquerading as digital strategists. It's always kind of like the flavor of the month. And they felt that, right? It was hard for them to win customers and they were competing and trying to differentiate themselves. But again, any you know anyone can kind of claim to understand how to, you know, do SEO and 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 buy search terms and 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 do social media. And then they discovered that private equity groups are trying to figure out the kind of what M&A guys call like the, the, the Rembrandt in the attic, right? You've heard that term, I'm sure, where like the homeowner doesn't know they're sitting on this gold mine in their attic. And, and that was James's sort of strategy. These private equity groups are looking for this kind of sleeping uh giant, so to speak, that that has not monetized or capitalized on its latent social media possibility, uh, digital kind of uh, possibility, and thereby buying that company would enable them to to own the company, transform it through a, through a creative digital strategy, and you know add a tremendous amount of value. What I think was so cool is they picked that niche, we call it monopoly control, one of the eight drivers of, of company value, um, of serving private equity groups. It's like a niche of a niche of a niche, but it worked for them. And I think that really stood out for me as like a really smart approach. Yeah, John, I wanted to hear more about, so when we think of the eight key drivers in Built to Sell, you mentioned the monopoly control, which is how well differentiated their business are. What are some other, what were some other of the drivers at play in James's story? I mean, that's really, you know, that was the, the big one. They, they had a really strong point of differentiation. You know, they had good financial performance, as you mentioned. Financial performance is one of the other drivers. They'd reached a million pounds in turnover, which is kind of a threshold where the business goes from, you know, maybe James and a, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a kind of an associate or two, uh, largely no value to a real business, right? With a million pounds, it's, about, it's roughly a million six or a million, depending on the exchange rate, a million six, a million eight in US dollars. It It's now got sort of a half dozen employees. They're starting to kind of get some traction. So I think from a financial performance uh, structure, uh, they were doing quite well. Uh, they had staged billing as well. Valuation teeter-totter is, is where the positive cash flow of the, of the business has an impact on its value. So they, you know, they charged the private equity group on a staged billing platform. So they weren't, you know, all back-end loaded. So they had a couple of things. But for me, Jeremy, the, you know, the real kind of, the real story, I think, with James Preble was, was doing one thing better than anybody else, which was this kind of digital due diligence for private equity groups. Again, I can't, I can't stress enough. Like, I don't know if you've, 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 you've interviewed thousands of entrepreneurs, but I feel like, I feel like it's the sleepy corners of 
of the economy where all the money gets made, right? Like the 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 big sort of you know that these the trying to create an electric car don't even think about it. right. Yeah, like who knew there was a company that did digital due diligence? First of all, what is digital due diligence? First time I'd ever heard the term was on the on the call. And I'm like, wow, that's such a cool thing. I never even thought about digital due diligence. And then there's like this whole company that does that for private equity groups. And by the way, the private equity groups are thinking of a digital strategy as their is their big play. Man, I didn't even, you know, like it was mind blowing. But again, that's one thing about doing this show for so long. I feel like there's always these these businesses who are like, I can't believe there's a company that does that. And it, it, it creates millions of dollars in revenue and sells for a truckload of money. Like it's, but anyways, that's what I found to be most kind of interesting about, about James's story. One of the things that made me nervous about the interview, John, was, and you asked him about the hiring process because you're like, you're two, two people. And that kind of goes into the Switzerland structure of how dependent is this? What were your thoughts on when he said, oh, it's me and they were looking to hire and, and how they were hiring as well? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So if you haven't listened to the episode, it's worth listening to that section because uh, I think it was kind of a cool, uh, James did some really cool stuff to attract kind of young millennials because my, my initial reaction hearing him say, you know, when it, when it went beyond James himself, I was like, well, how do you hire people? He was describing, you know, trying to convince that the top people from Oxford and Cambridge, by the way, James's company is based in the UK. So the, the universities, the top universities, Oxford, Cambridge, et cetera. And he was describing how he was recruiting these people to come work for this kind of little startup. And what little I know of the kind of digital universe right now is people who are really smart and understand digital are in high demand, right? Like Deloitte, every you know blue-blooded sort of consultancy out there is trying to recruit very smart people with digital chops right now for their digital practices. And I'm like, how do you compete with the likes of Deloitte and McKinsey and and, and these people that are all trying to vie for uh, these young people? And, uh, you know, I think his response was like, it, well, it's about flexibility and it's about giving them a shot to do something in a young company that they wouldn't have the opportunity to do at, at a Deloitte or McKinsey. And I think, uh, I think that was really, that was really interesting uh, fodder and, and really thoughtful about how it wasn't just James and, and some helpers, that he was really able to recruit some really smart people. So when we talk about the uh, nine subscriptions, you know, the, and the automatic customer piece, or did you see any at play or um, that could have been at play? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, don't, I do not believe, uh, we didn't get into it, but I think you might've mentioned it, uh, it had he had a subscription model. So no, I don't think there was a subscription model at play. Um, I don't know, it, it is such a transactional business, like digital due diligence, as I came to learn, was this thing that, private equity companies would do in order to evaluate a company they were considering investing in or buying outright. And, and so by the very nature of what they do, every transaction is different. It's very lumpy. It's, you know, so that's one area that, that, that was maybe problematic to their business model. And I, I don't know uh, if they'd explored uh, recurring revenue. One thing that they may have tried that they, that, uh, that could have worked perhaps would have been doing some sort of benchmarking subscription 
uh, research that they could have sold to multiple private equity groups. Like if you like, you know, the big advertising agencies, for example, they do these like brand equity studies and, you know, they, they measure the, the, the value of Coca-Cola versus Google and versus Harley Davidson. And they, they kind of put some sort of economic value to them. Maybe they could have created sort some sort of, uh, uh, you know, digital, uh, benchmarking value to, to kind of smaller mid-sized companies that you know it's not fully fleshed out in my mind but maybe there'd be something there that multiple private equity groups could subscribe to that would have given them a little bit of subscription revenue but more importantly it would have given them uh visibility into all of those private equity groups and, and ongoing relationships with all those private equity groups so so yeah the model they had didn't necessarily lend itself to recurring revenue but maybe there was something that they could have done there no, I love that because it kind of gets the creative juices flowing on other other options, right? Because people listening right now, that may spark something in their business model to go, oh yeah, I, I should be doing something something similar to that. Um, and then were there anything that stuck out as negotiation high points, low points, or things that parts where you saw they were prepared? Because in I know in the art of selling your business, you talk about kind of that punching above your weight um, and about building your negotiation leverage. Did anything stick out as far as negotiation or how they were prepared for certain things? Yeah, I mean, they sold to a a consolidated marketing services company that's buying up uh, various different assets. So they're buying, you know, digital companies. They're buying, you know, emails. You know, they're buying lots of different to to create an integrated marketing services solution, which uh, which is happening in in that marketing services space all over the place. So that the marketing services of, is a, is an area that's very hot in the M and A world. There's lots of companies being acquired, even very very small businesses. Again. Uh, Preble's business was was relatively small, again, a million pounds in turnover. So it's, it's fairly early. I think, you know, the the one thing that it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback when when you, you know, you have time to think about it and, and, and you know, hindsight's 2020. I think maybe the one thing if I was coaching James a little bit, I might have said was it was super early, you know, like they had just like it was very early in their life cycle as a company. And um and so maybe there was, maybe there was, you know, they, they sold and a lot of it is back end loaded. So a lot of the value will be on the earnout, and, and of course, earnouts can be at risk. You know, I think the early days of that relationship are going really well. They describe the partnership they have with the various other companies and it's really performing well. So, so I think it's going to work out fine, but of course with an earnout, there is some risk associated with that. And I think if, if they've been maybe a little bit later, uh, maybe three or four million pounds in turnover, say five million dollars in revenue, they might have gotten a little bit more of the of the of the upfront payment, a little less at, at risk in an earnout. Uh, again, it's easy for me to Monday morning quarterback that in hindsight. Uh, they they it was a great deal for them. They structured it so that uh, you know they they will have lots of capital in order to grow the business and and they're and they're and they are poised if it goes well to to hit their earnout figure so i think it'll work out just fine but again maybe i'm just a bit of a control freak i i i don't like having you know my destiny tied to someone else's decision making but but again it's easy for me to say that in, in high school. yeah 
No, I, I don't know if they would disagree with any of that, right? Um, I want to take questions, so put them in the chat. But while I ask you this, John, you know, when you talk about earnout and the risk, how should people think about when someone offers earnout? Yeah, look, I mean, I, look, I think it's a bit of gravy. I think personally, um, if you think about what an earnout is, you're giving up control over your company and you are signing up as an employee of another company to achieve a certain goal. And it can work out fabulously well and it can also work out terribly. Some people refer to it as a jail sentence. Uh, you know, again, a, a very free-spirited entrepreneur who is used to calling their own shots, I think is going to find and earn out like a, a really struggle, a really difficult time. So I would love, uh, I would love to, for, for listeners to get to the point where the majority of their proceeds from the sale of their company is, is cash at closing. And, and they think of the earnout as, as, a, as the kind of cherry on top of the cupcake. It's, it's, it's great if they hit it, but if they don't, Hey, that's okay. That's okay too, because they've been paid fairly for their company. I remember I did an interview uh, Built Cell Radio. This goes back years ago. If you're interested, uh, type in uh, Built Cell Radio. Rod Drury, D R U, D R U R Y. We'll put it in the show notes. But Rod uh, built uh, Zero, as you probably know. Zero is the big 800-pound gorilla unicorn company. But before he started Zero, he built a company called Aftermail. And Aftermail had this cool business where uh, it was around the time of Sarbanes-Oxley, that legislation in the United States, and they wanted to uh, basically help big companies to archive their email, among other things. And and all these big companies, Fortune 500 companies, have been slapped on the wrist around the whole WorldCom and uh, issue that sparked Sarbanes-Oxley. And as a result, they all were clamoring for this this software. Well, long story short, Rogery sells two customers, a million bucks each. He's got $2 million of revenue and he sells his business to Quest Software. Quest has all of the Fortune 500. They all need the software. And so it felt like a very symbiotic strategic acquisition. Rod sold for $15 million cash up front and the opportunity to sell or the opportunity to get another $20 million in an earnout. So total $35 million deal, 15 up front, 20 on the, on the come. Um, he was a young guy at the time. So what do you think a young guy with a $15 million check does? He goes out and has a great time uh, and and sort of you know blows off some steam, comes back. And at that point, he'd sort of missed his first gate because the way an earnout usually works is your budget gets released uh, based on achieving a set of milestones along the way. And if you miss the first one, it's like a downhill ski racer. You miss a gate, you can't catch up. And, and so he missed the first gate. Long story short, he left Quest I think it was after eight months, walked away from the $20 million uh, check because he knew he was never going to get it. And, it, you know, I say that not because I think earnouts are bad. I think earnouts are, are, are a realistic, uh, like, especially for a service company, they're, it's almost always going to have some component of earnout. Uh, it's just, I think if you, can, if you can structure it so that the majority of your proceeds are paid up front and the earnout is just gravy, then I think that just lights, helps you sleep better at night. I remember listening to that one, John, and thinking, oh, really? oh my God, you, you better get ahead of it. Like anyone, you better get ahead of it or you fall behind really quickly. And then yeah. it's kind of a big, it's a big lost opportunity, right? Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So I want to get to Andrew uh, Gostecchio. Um, he took the he took this was an amazing story, by the way. Um, you know, but he grew up on using food stamps with his mom. Yeah. His his dad died early. He took fifty thousand dollars he made in the sale of his first business. He was in college at the time for a college student. I mean, I remember I made like two thousand dollars. I felt rich. So I don't know how he was dealing <laughs> with fifty thousand dollars, but. You know, he used it, invested to create a simple template any business could use to create a mobile app. And, he, you know, the company was business apps. Uh, I even remember at the time, actually, when it came out. And um, business apps grew to more than $7 million in revenue just for in four years. And he was offered $15 million, I believe, for 70% of the company. He turned it down, which I want to hear your thoughts on that. But he later <laughs> sold it more, for more than $20 million. So what were your thoughts on Andrew's story? I, I agree, uh, Jeremy, uh, like Gizdecki is like, it's an amazing story. If you haven't listened to it, you know, it's worth going back. And, and so just to be clear, the deal was, what he noticed was that he, the, the company he started in college was like a, a little tiny version of Upwork, right? Like a marketplace for freelancers, right? And he noticed, that there were a lot of searches for someone to help restaurants to build a mobile app. And he's like, why do all these restaurants want a mobile app? And look at how much they're, you know, they're, they're bidding over each other, following all of each other to, to get a mobile app created. And this was around the time where, you know, the iPhone was just kind of hitting its stride and everybody wanted a mobile app, including every plumbing company, every you know, fitness company, every gym, every restaurant, all these small businesses, none of which could afford the 50, 60, $70,000 to, for a professional development shop to create a mobile app. And so he's like, hold on a second. If we just created like a template, that all these restaurants and gyms could use, like we could build it once and then sell it to thousands of different gyms and restaurants. And that's, that's how the business came to be. And to your point, I mean, what a cool story. Yeah, he, he went and it was like a rocket ship. He was like 22 when he started. And I think when he was like 27 or something, he was 26. Like he was a young, young person. And he was offered $15 million for 70% of the company. And like my reaction to that is like, how do you turn that down? Like, like that for a 27-year-old who grew up on food stamps, you know, uh, but knowing, I think, what I know about entrepreneurs, one of the things that 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 we are susceptible to, I think, is riding it over the top, right? Like we're, I think entrepreneurs by their nature are optimistic. Tomorrow is always going to be better than today. Uh, and I think for Andrew, he just said, look, like we're on a rocket ship. We're already, at, you know, worth 15. I'm 25 or 27 or whatever I am. Like, yeah. What, what's this going to be worth in five years, right? And I think, I think that's when uh, his world collapsed. And and if you haven't listened to the episode, I, I kind of don't want to spoil it for you, but I but I yeah. I, I'm going to tell we'll you just, anyways. We'll, we'll just like open a loop and say just he had to email Tim Cook to get things taken care of because Apple there were some things with Apple. I don't. I it just I well, was. No, go ahead. No, I mean look, we got look. Here's the problem. The majority of apps at the time were on the App Store, the iTunes App Store, the Apple App Store. And overnight, 
Tim Cook and the, it wasn't Tim Cook, but he obviously would have would have approved it. But someone lower in the organization made the decision that they would no longer accept mobile apps that were template based. And I can't remember. Do you remember? Like, do you remember what proportion of his revenue was coming from mobile? From it was a bit like it was like ninety percent of of his of his. Yeah, were I mean, I think they were panicking because. The they were all getting they weren't getting approved all the apps that they were creating and they it's a panic yeah. mode because that's the revenue stream yeah that's it. an entire revenue stream is these small businesses paying them for mobile apps that were not being approved on the app store so literally overnight he goes from being a 27 year old being offered 15 million dollars for a, 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 a for 70 percent of his company to really staring in the face of bankruptcy like it was going to zero he was there was like the whole business with one decision at apple hq was basically putting them out of business and he describes the panic in the episode well and just like the the conversations with customers and, and reassuring his employees and i mean god it kind of like listening to it i was just like oh i could i just i i've had similar situations in businesses where you're trying to put up a brave face for you with your employees uh but it's but you know that the, the crap is hitting the fan right and so Anyways, he cold emailed Tim Cook. At, like, I don't know how he found Tim Cook's email address. Whether he just like it's actually he actually he he, he uses it in the episode. So if you're interested in cold emailing Tim Cook, you can listen to the episode. But he cold emailed Tim Cook, and uh, and 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 he was just watching. Uh, sadly, an interview with someone who was struggling with uh, mental illness, and and they had. Uh, used a mobile app for people who struggle with mental illness. And they, in particular, I think it was depression. And he cold emailed Tim Cook and said, do you really, and it was one of his customers who had this mobile app that helped uh, young people deal with depression. And he emailed Tim Cook and he said, do you really want to take this app off of your app store? Look at the good it is doing for this, this woman who's dealing with mental health issues. This can't be your decision. And and that email got forwarded to the head of the app store and long story short they got the decision overturned and uh and Gizdecki went on to sell his business for more than 20 million bucks and yeah you know, i mean great success story but but i think the, the kind of underlying lesson for andrew and certainly for me too was a good reminder of what we call the switzerland structure at value builder it's like this this dependency on any one customer employer supplier oftentimes we know about customer concentration that's something we know we've heard about a lot and equally we know we can't be too dependent on employee but we sort of forget about suppliers oftentimes right like oh yeah suppliers whatever in actual fact in this case it was a supplier risk because the itunes store was effectively a supplier of theirs and and it's referred to in the technology space as quote unquote platform risk, and 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 of course Andrew came to learn in the most difficult circumstances possible that when you have platform risk, it can undermine the value of your company. In fact, take it to zero if you're too dependent on on any one platform. In this case, it was the Apple iTunes Store or the App Store, whatever you call it. Yeah, John, I want to point out that I think people go to builttosell.com and if they want to take that that score, the value builder score, they can find it there because 
I, you know, you just mentioned the Switzerland structure, but there's eight key drivers and it kind of factors all those in. Um, so I want to point people to that. But so my next question, you know, with this story is we talked about a few things. Was there anything else, you know, that we talked about a few things that surprised us about this story? And I know, again, there was a million moving pieces around swirling around here. But was what did um, maybe Andrew observe or did you observe that could have made the sale even better? I mean, you know. What I found really surprising, I think, was how quickly um, the whole Tim Cook experience changed him as a person. Because it wasn't long after Tim Cook made the decision to 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 put template-based apps back on the the Apple Store and basically reinstitute Andrew's business. It wasn't long after that that he decided to sell and sell quickly. And he wasn't, uh, as he describes in the episode, he wasn't he wasn't trying to kind of play one acquire off the other and create a, a competitive marketplace. He did he he was fairly surgical and quite quick and very motivated to sell his company. And you know, again, in retrospect, I see why and I understand why he had gone through a very emotional experience that for where he saw his life business life flashed between his before his eyes so i get 100% um but it was it was it was great to see how quickly he sort of changed you know we talk about and we built a new tool uh at value builder called the freedom point we talk about it a lot the freedom point is the time the point in time where the sale of your business uh you know the after tax after you pay your advisors and so forth that sum of money would effectively fund your lifestyle for the rest of your life. It, if you sell your business and, and whatever's left over, you effectively could live for the rest of your life. Um, I think when you reach that point, when your business is worth that much, it's uh, it's worth asking yourself, okay, is now the time, right? Because if you think about it, Andrew learned in the most painful way possible that he was a poker player you know, in the game of life, he had all his chips on the table um, in his mobile app company. The vast, vast majority of his wealth was his business. Like, I'm sure it was probably 95% of his wealth. And, and overnight, he saw it flash before his eyes. And as a result, he had obviously had this life-changing experience when he restabilized the company and, and came to learn it was could be worth more than $20 million for, I guess he was like 27 at the time. Well, clearly that's like more money than anyone would ever need for the rest of their life. And he had reached the freedom point and he quickly pulled the trigger on a sale. And um, I thought that was really, um, first of all, great on his part to realize that. And, and even a little surprising, just given his age, that he'd come to that sort of that point of wisdom in his life at such a young age, maybe. I feel like maybe, you know, the first offer of the 15 million, right? And then it became 20 million. I'm, I'm wondering if he had read Built to Sell way back when, uh, and he wrote down his freedom, because, part, you know, in the story, Built to Sell, people, they should get the book, but some you recommend people write down that number, seal it up, and when you're ready to sell, pull that out so you don't get too emotional. I wonder if he would have written that out. Maybe he would have written down 7 million and then he would have opened that envelope and it would have been, 
oh, they're offering me 15 million. I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good it's a good point. I think we we and I tried to communicate that and build this up. We, we move the yardsticks. Right. Like when when we achieve a certain I mean, we do this in all sorts of ways in our lives. And it's one of the most insidious things that we do to ourselves, especially type A achievement oriented goal setting people is like, OK, we're, you know, we put the big goal together and and we say, okay, we're gonna, you know, in, in our context today, I'm gonna sell my business for X dollars. And and you reach a point where where it's worth that and like we're susceptible to moving the chains, right? We're like, well, maybe actually that's not enough. Now I want X money. <laughs> and it's such a dangerous sort of slippery slope because again, like if the pandemic's taught us anything, it's like nobody knows what tomorrow is gonna bring. And 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 if you reach that point where you can you can get a foot on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and never fall back down again. Meaning you can get, I think what, what's the first level of that? I mean, you're it's a doctor. Like you know, the first level or, is like yeah, it's secure like food, right. shelter, whatever shelter. your basic needs. Yeah. yeah, like like if you can get like to step one or two on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and never fear stepping down off that again, like it's it's life changing. It's life changing. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I want to get to Daryl, but I was rooting for Andrew the whole way. I mean, just from his 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 beginning story to, you know, I felt like I was listening to a movie, you know, script and like, I'm like, take it. Oh, no, he's not going to take it. What's going to happen next? So listen to that episode. Um, Daryl Lerner. Um, Daryl Lerner was on the heels of building a successful online, you know, he built this new company on the heels of building a successful online dating application. And he applied his experience in the dating industry to pet adoption. And he built a website and mobile app called All Paws. Um, and it allowed users to find a pet, you know, a pet based on a variety of criteria important to people considering adopting an animal. And in two years, All Paws accumulated more than 1.5 million registered users. It was receiving nearly 1 million visits per month while ranking in the top 100 of lifestyle apps. And he was around a million dollars in revenue. He decided he was going to sell All Paws, and he decided at the time if he could get at least three million dollars for his company he was going to sell it. So um, there was a number of things that surprised me, but tell me what your thoughts are on, on Daryl. Uh, it's a great, I mean, what a great story. And talk about like repurposing your, the wisdom that you got from business one to business two. We often talk about this idea and it's a bit pejorative. So I, I don't know if it's the right thing to, you know, your first business is like your training wheels business, right? Like, hey, like go out, make a bunch of mistakes, start it early, start it young. And 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 get all that stuff out of your system because you're going to learn all the things not to do and your and then bring those to your second business. You know, don't start one business and hold it for 45 years because you don't have the opportunity to do the you know the, the mulligan. So I love the fact that he took what he learned in the dating business and 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 brought it to all pause. I think that's a cool idea. I also think it's interesting. Like they chose the advertising business model to monetize the app, you, as you described, like massive traction, millions of downloads of the, I can't remember all the statistics you just laid out, but like it was a very, very popular app, but not necessarily monetizing well. And, and Daryl described that on the episode. He's like, like it was, it was never going to be a unicorn. Like I, I built it to whatever it was, a million dollars in revenue, but I just didn't see how it was going to grow much further than that. Um, yet what he had was data because 
people who were adopting dogs, uh, which was the business model, it was like a mobile app for you know, dog adoption for primarily, like, guess what? They, they need to feed those dogs <laughs> and they need dog food and they need chew toys and need all the stuff that PetSmart sells, right? Um, and so it was the data that I think made his business valuable. It wasn't necessarily uh, a financial acquisition where they were buying, you know, all pause profitability or, or even revenue. It was like, it was the data that PetSmart was after. And, uh, and I thought that was a cool, it goes back to a little bit around the James Preble, uh, you know, the, the whole Rembrandt in the, in the attic. I mean, in this case, Daryl knew he had a Rembrandt because he knew he had the data, but it, it's like when your business is, is maybe worth more than the economics would certainly suggest it's worth, it, oftentimes it's, it's, uh, it's this hidden thing about your business that makes it like incredibly valuable to a company. Uh, in this case, PetSmart uh, you know, paid much more than than uh, than Daryl sort of even dreamed of getting for his business because of the data. This one also made me nervous because I think you asked at one point, you know, Daryl, how are you gonna how are you thinking of monetizing this? And he's like, I, I just need to build up the traffic. You know, that wasn't he had to build up yeah. the traffic first before he could think of monetizing because there wasn't a direct monetization strategy there, right? There, there wasn't. It, but to his credit, if you listen very early, he described how he solved the chicken or egg problem. So in any marketplace, there, you know, two-sided, three-sided marketplace, whatever, it, it's always how do you deal with the chicken and, and egg issue, right? I was talking to my wife yesterday. We were talking about the story of Uber and and like how they actually got enough drivers to supply enough you know, people who wanted, now we just Uber everywhere and it's just ubiquitous and we don't even think about it. But at the time, without find like infinite capital- It has to it reach like, critical mass get, at some point. Yeah, yeah, how do you create critical mass so the marketplace works? And in, 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 and so that's always the conundrum. Unless you have just like truckloads of VC money, it's like, how do you create critical mass? In Daryl Lerner's case at All Pause, love this, they partnered with a pet adoption uh, agency like a like that had thousands of listings already. So kind of overnight, they uploaded all of their listings onto the All Pause platform, and all of a sudden they'd solved that one piece of the pie, which was inventory dogs effectively for that needed to be adopted, and and then they could just focus on getting people who wanted to adopt dogs. Um, much easier when they had one side of the two-sided market sort of overnight scaled. So they, they partnered with uh, with this kind of national pet adoption agency, which I thought was such a brilliant move um, out of the gate to solve that that conundrum. Yeah, and I thought, I mean, he's a super smart guy. And the other thing he did that was smart, he found that not only could he get the data, but people weren't um, filtering it. Like no one had asked that company to filter it and do filter in certain ways. Like if you want this type of dog or, you know, he really figured out a way that people can filter um, the data on his website, which no one else had done before. You know, yeah, he was. They had a great app. It was differentiated. You go, you go back to monopoly control. It was the the leader in the market, so it was the best app. So when PetSmart we said, okay, we want a mobile app. It was quite easy for them to say, well, we want the best one because we're pet smart. We're not, you know, like we can just buy the best and we don't need to screw around with the kind of second best or the one that's sort of trying to be good, like just go to the best and they were the best. So it was, it was an easy, 
Were there any yeah. other key drivers at place? I know when we talk about the eight key drivers, you mentioned the monopoly control. Um, were there others at play that made his business really strong? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it was the data and, and that ties back to what's the moat around your business, which is what we refer to as monopoly control and, and the relationship with the pet adoption, national pet adoption agency gave them supply one side of the market. And so to the extent that was an exclusive arrangement, I didn't, I failed to ask him that, Jeremy. I should have asked if I didn't. But I, you know, in retrospect, I should have said it. Was that an exclusive deal? Meaning, meaning, did they have proprietary, mm. you know, locked in? If Could they someone had, else do it, yeah, that, that would have made it even more valuable because it would have been a, a barrier for anybody else to do it. So I, I didn't ask him. I should. That was stupid. But any, any event, that that relationship, I think, was 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 cool and critical to uh, to making sure that the moat around the data, meaning nobody else could just kind of overnight flip a switch and get the same degree of data that they had. Uh, I think that would have all lent to his monopoly control. And again, uh, why they would have been so attractive to PetSmart. Again, that's a strategic acquisition, right? Like PetSmart's not buying them for their revenue or their profitability. It's not like, okay, we can add a 200 grand in EBITDA to our, <laughs> that's not what PetSmart's thinking. They're thinking we can, we can, we can take these millions of downloads and, and farm or mine that data to sell, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of dog food down the road. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a seems like a no-brainer for them to get the company. Yeah. Um so when we talk about the subscription models, the nine subscription models, I know, you know, from their the app itself and then there's the company acquiring them, what subscription models do you see at play with not just Daryl but also the acquiring company and how they should use this? Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about it. I think the uh, you know, one of the nine subscription models is insurance. And I know insurance is kind of a dirty word. Nobody likes to buy it. So I'm, I mean, it has to even raise it. But but when you adopt a pet, you always have the question, like, is this going to be a lemon? Like, am I adopting like some like dog that's had some sort of you know, tragic life and therefore I'm going to be at the vet every six months with some horrific bill? And I think people who adopt dogs do it out of the best of intentions, but often have no... Uh, you know, no scope of what it's going to cost to own a dog and 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 some of the medical things that, that go into that. And so I think some sort of pet insurance offering mm. could have been cool. I love that. Uh, so sell that advice. sell that advice to PetSmart. Maybe they're doing it. <laughs> okay, let's rewind. Don't tell well, them I, that. Let's go. I bought pet insurance when I got my dog. I'm like, I don't want to worry about if something goes wrong. Right. So I, I that's a month and you can kind of forget. I don't know what it costs you. Yeah. What is it? What does pet insurance cost? I don't remember. I made this. It wasn't expensive, honestly. Right. I don't remember what it was, but I think it also, you know, pays for a certain number of well visits a year. So it was. It seemed like a no-brainer oh, cool. to me when I got yeah. it. Yeah, something yeah. there might have been cool. Again, he could have monetized that um, mm. his own. I mean, he had the data again, so he could have chosen to monetize it rather than PetSmart. But uh, I love. But that. again, I think Daryl did a great job, and like, what an amazing story. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, you know, thank you. I think he did an awesome job. Anything else? I love the pet insurance. I'm just going to keep picking your brain till you give more good ideas. But anything else that you see, maybe he observed or that you think um, could have made this even better? No, I mean, I think, mm. you know, obviously when dealing with a strategic acquirer, when you have the attention of a strategic acquirer like a PetSmart, um, 
many large Fortune 500 companies, it's been my observation, um, are very defensive in their posture. So we as entrepreneurs are offensive in our posture, meaning we're always thinking about new ideas and new things that we can go do. Oftentimes, Fortune 500 companies have been tremendously successful. They've got a franchise, they've got a constituency, they've got an audience, they've got distribution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're, and they're, and they're kind of, starting point is like defense. How do I how do I hold on to what I've got? And so I think that also plays out in the MA world, meaning they don't want to lose deals to their greatest competitor. And so PetSmart competes with what are some of the big uh, big US retailers Petco, for Petco, I think. There's Petco, I think Daryl, yeah. So and I think Daryl to his credit uh did engage Petco, but there's there's two or three major competitors. And Again, I don't want to Monday morning quarterback this because I think he did a great job and PetSmart paid a premium. If I was, you know, in a perfect world, it would have been great to get a direct offer from the two or three other major uh, pet retailer because once once the CEO of like a major Fortune 500 company kind of gets wind that there's a deal that they want to do, um, and that they risk losing that again, going back to the defensive posture. Uh, if someone else is going to outbid them, I think that's when the, the checkbook mm. starts to uh, starts to open up pretty wide. So, you know, I, I think uh, had he created some more competitive tension, maybe with another Fortune 500 company, that might have might have juiced it. But but again, overall, I think it was a great deal for for Daryl. Yeah, no, that, that was one thing that stuck out actually, because it's it goes into your book, the art of selling your business is building your negotiation leverage, and you did have him talk about how he kind of drew out the tensions between Petco and PetSmart in that in that deal. So I, I love that part. Um, before we go to Jim, th this is one of my favorite ones. Jim uh, still, and for a couple of reasons, is there anything else that surprised you about? Um, Daryl's story. The fact that he had two people at the company, that's what stuck out for me is shocking. Yeah. 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 What, anything yeah, that no, jumped out at you that was, no, that was surprising? I think, no. I think we've covered a lot of it. I okay. think, um, you know, he, he, what's, what was interesting, I think was he had a, I, I think he was a, his, a, a big brother or brother that he was in the dating business with. And he, I think he described his brother to me. I can't remember if it was on or off air, but as uh, you know, it was a pretty big success story. Like his brother has, uh, is, I think he wouldn't mind me saying is a bit more the front guy and, and Daryl's a little bit more the behind the scenes guy in the, in the dating business. So it's kind of fun to see Daryl have a win on his own independent of his brother, uh, which is kind of, kind of a cool backstory piece. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Check yeah. that episode out. It was, it was, uh, it was great. Um, Jim is still, this is, you know, so as you described him on the episode, he's one of the most successful entrepreneurs people have never heard of. You, you kind of even said like, you're like the Elon Musk of Canada. How have I not heard of you before? And so in 1975, Jim started EMJ Data, uh, which was a technology distribution company from the trunk of his car. And he grew it to $350 million in sales before taking it public. And uh, he bought... Dan, Danby Appliances, and he currently runs it, and he grown it. He's grown it to over four hundred million dollars in sales, and you know, so he invested in more than hundred startups. And his latest, and and it, you kind of, 
it's called a side hustle. If you could call this a side hustle, right? Most people's side hustles are making like a thousand dollars a month or something like that. Well, Jim takes his side hustle to another level because um, he created Shipperbee, right? And Shipperbee, if you imagine Uber uh, for your packages, and instead of calling a courier company to pick up your packages, you call um, a business, you know, the business schedule to pick up with Shipperbee and they pick up your packages and distribute it to different. So it's more of a B2B. Um, he invested $5 million of his own money, raised another 25 million in three years, grew it to 150 employees and sold it. So just, I loved your, your surprise throughout the interview of like just uncovering <laughs> well, these facts about Jim throughout, but go ahead. What are your thoughts on Jim? It's funny because it's usually, um, usually like when I see a built cell radio interview in on my calendar, I, uh, I do a bit of research as the, the, the person who books the uh, uh, guest, her name is Haley Parkhiller, our producer. Haley will put um, like notes, like, re, you know, watch this video, read, you know, read. The, and I was, must have been running from another meeting or whatever. I, I didn't read the notes. So I'm like, all right, Jeffrey, me. tell me about this company. Right. <laughs> and he's a little like he's a, he was a little bit like, OK, sure, whatever. We jump in. And I guess most of the time he gets interviewed. The, the guest or the host probably butters him up with all kinds of like accolades like you just did and like and I did none of that and then I said to him so like what you like like how'd you get this thing off the ground and he's like well I invested five million dollars in my own money I'm like what'd you just say <laughs> well I invested five he million said it pretty nonchalant like, yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> like you gotta write to that check every you know every couple of days you, you know and I'm like wait <laughs> Where did you get the five million bucks to, to invest in Chipperbee? He's like, well, I've had some other businesses that I've started and sold, and then I've like re over throughout the episode, I'm like, oh man, I feel like such a tool <laughs> because you know he is like this incredibly successful, very like was on the board of Rim, like when Barack Obama was like using a, a BlackBerry, like BlackBerry was like this massive success story, like it was the mobile phone that everybody wanted and like he was on the board you know like anyway long story short i just made a fool of myself on the episode uh but it was jim was very gracious and didn't make me feel bad but to your point he built this cool company shipper b and you're right it's kind of like the uber of parcels and it you know like when you think about it, if you want to ship and, and again his perspective at danby major appliances um, like if your light bulb, or that's not a good example, but if like your tray and your oven needs to be replaced, it's kind of a big clunky thing that you've got to ship and it weighs a lot and it's, um, and you don't have a lot of options. Like you could call up FedEx and say, can, you know, can you ship this like massive big metal, you know, thing that weighs 12 pounds is going to cost you a hundred bucks. And like, if you're Danby, and you're doing that thousands of times a day, it starts to add up, right? And he's like, there's got to be a better way to ship like heavy, clunky stuff um, than just calling FedEx every, you know, every minute or UPS or whatever. And so he realized that there were a lot of people, um, oftentimes retired people actually, who had a few hours on their, on you know, during yeah. the day that they weren't hey, doing anything. People, by the way, John, that like, were retired, they were previous driver. Like they just wanted to stay busy, but they didn't want a full-time job. So they were fully vetted and experienced too. Right. It was really smart, yeah. super smart idea. I mean, it's, it's literally the B2B Uber. I mean, he created it. 
Exactly. Exactly. So basically the way it works is, is, is you call up Chipper B, go online or the app or whatever you schedule your, your shipment and, and somebody comes and picks it up at your factory or whatever. And then they send it to these hives. The hives are these like little pods, these, these lockers effectively. And, and somebody else, so it's sort of like daisy chains its way to the, um, in, in a sort of almost like a hub and spoke model to its final destination. Now, as I describe it, it sounds, and I was like, but Jim, that sounds super unreliable, right? Like all these hives and I've got to, like one guy's going to try. And he's like, yeah, but that's what FedEx does, right? Like FedEx right. uses a network of local hubs and the package just goes seamlessly from one hub to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, and ultimately the last mile to your home or your office. And it's the same thing, but for your parcel. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was cool business. Well, John, I mean, I love how it unfolded. I know maybe you thought you, internally you want to be prepared, but I love how it unfolded because you were just as surprised as everyone else hearing it. So you you were you know actually expressing that along with everyone else as opposed to if you had prepared, I'm almost glad you were running late and didn't prepare for it because <laughs> I got to feel the surprise that I felt when he was saying these things, okay? Mm. Um, so I like that that part. And he was super modest and super gracious about what he's done in his career. So I love that too about him. When we when we talk about the the eight key drivers, okay, what were some of the ones at play that you found with with Shipper B? Well, the big one is one we talked about in the context of, of James Preble and a little bit Andrew Gizdecki as well. It was monopoly control. And so what uh, Jim Estelle did really, really well was he invested in protecting the idea. He realized early that what he was doing was quite innovative. The idea of Uber is been done, right? Lyft ripped them off. I mean, like the, the, that exists, right? But but an Uber for packages was unique. And so as was the, the, the hive concept, they created these little, these pods or hives that enable the package to be shipped along. And so he quite early realized that and invested to protect that IP and, and that, that, like he patented that, that process. And a lot of, you know, I, I'm sure you, you interview the entrepreneurs all the time, Jeremy, I'm sure you probably talk to some startups where they're like super protective over their idea. They're like, oh, I've got this great idea. I don't want to tell you about it. Or can you sign so many, an NDA? So many people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> can you sign an NDA to, you know, I hear my story of a new coffee shop. I'm thinking it's like, it's like, no, I'm not signing your NDA, right? So everybody thinks their idea is this sort of like very precious, you know, like can't. In Jim's case, actually what he created is worth protecting. And I think it did give him a, a moat around 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 competitors uh, because he had protected the idea of of shipping packages using the same technology so i think it was worth it, it yeah. usually i'm like don't bother spending money with your trademark lawyers like yeah he spent a lot of money on patents i believe yeah he spent over a, mil a million bucks uh now he has that kind of money to blow but <laughs> but but he spent a million bucks to protect simply just on the on ip lawyer or uh, pat uh, patent lawyers on protecting the technology, which I think gave him a bit of a moat against competitors popping up. And I yeah. think that was, um, you know, that was one of the, one of the, one of the great 
sort of successes. Again, they, they, he, he, he personally invested five million. He got another twenty million dollars investment cap, so he had money, but he was blowing through money pretty quickly. Like he went from zero to like a hundred employees in what you said in the intro. I think three years or something. Massive. He scaled up really like in uh, I think it was in Toronto area, right? I mean that was yeah, he really yeah. focused in the in one area to prove out the model, and he he probably proved it out that he could see this could be nationwide. That was only in one one small city that he yeah. did this in, by the way. So the yeah. the subscription models uh, when we talk about the nine subscription models, what was at play there for Jim? Uh, there was no subscription model that I'm aware of. Uh, in that case, you know, could he have gotten his drivers to maybe pony up for some sort of platform fee? Like, hey, be a shipper, be driver, and you know, it's going to be 50 bucks a month, and that's going to keep you, uh, you know, your your active shipper be like, like, could he have done something like that? Maybe. The benefit of getting people to opt in is, of course. They once they make an investment in a platform, it makes them more likely to embed in, right? To 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 invest in the platform. So he he dealt with a lot of transient workers. Uh, transient's probably a too negative a term, but 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 gig the gig economy workers, right? Yeah. And absolutely. so with people like that, if you're, you know, if you don't make them opt in, you know, if they find a better job, like if if delivering pizzas becomes more valuable, or or being an Uber driver, like all of a sudden. You lose people. And what happened to Jim, and he describes this on the episode, sadly, when the pandemic hit, a lot of his drivers had to stop driving. And it was for medical reasons because they, for the most part, they were retired, they were older, and they were the most susceptible to, to, to getting COVID. And so many of them just stopped kind of being out and about as a result of COVID. And, and therefore, he had some challenges finding drivers. Um, so maybe there's a there would have been a platform play where they could have got some subscription revenue from from drivers. Um, yeah, you know what, you bring up a good point, John, because I feel like maybe I mean again, like we're <clears throat> he did an amazing job, right, with what he did. But I think one of the things that held him back, there were a lot of costs involved in background checks and all the stuff they were doing with these mm -hmm. people. And I think the company he sold to had all those pieces in place, which made it they didn't have those costs because they already had drivers with the newspaper company. So that was, I think, a barrier of continuing to grow the driver base, whereas the company bottom already had the drivers in place. Um, yeah, so, yeah. We, should, we should talk about, we should talk about that because it's a, it's a key, you know, when you talk about reasons strategic acquirers make strategic acquisitions and when, you know, when you, you know, because along the way I was thinking, oh, it's going to be FedEx or, you know, uh, UPS that buys this company or Pure Letter, which is kind of a Canadian version of, of UPS. Um, and and so he did have conversations with those players about acquiring the company. Ultimately, though, it, it was a different business. And and again, I, I just talked to a guy last night who sold his company. It was a it was a, a company called Wave. They do um, uh, small business uh, accounting software. He sold H and R Block, and he kind of said it a bit sheepishly, like like of all all companies, it was H and R Block. Like you would never have thought. And equally. You know, you never know who's going to have a strategic reason to buy your business, and I think it makes sense to think quite laterally about the universe of people that would buy. In the end, Jim sold his company to Torstar. Torstar is, stands for Toronto Star. That's the origin, the origin of that, the name Torstar, and it's the largest metropolitan daily newspaper in 
Canada. And of course, there's lots of other smaller regional newspapers that they own, et cetera. And in small markets, people still get newspapers delivered, if you can believe it. So they have drivers. And those drivers, as the newspaper business has atrophied, those drivers become less and less busy. So they've got all across Southern Ontario, which is where Jim Shipper B was, was based and sort of piloted, they had like hundreds of drivers. Many of them were underemployed, underutilized effectively. And so the idea of basically buying Shipper B enabled them to immediately keep their drivers busy, keep their distribution network in place, yet given them more stuff to do. And I never would have thought Torstar, but when you actually think about it, it makes brilliant strategic sense. But again, it, it's not, it wasn't the obvious strategic acquire. I think that's, that's why, you know, if, if I was coaching an entrepreneur through like, who's your most strategic acquirer, it, it would be like, really think laterally about like, who's out there with a big distribution force that needs more stuff in their bag to sell or to distribute, you know, like, those are some of the questions that, that come to mind, I think, but Jim being so savvy, he kind of knew it and, and was, was successful. First of all, Jen, I want to thank you. This has been amazing. I think everyone should check out the Built to Sell radio. Um, if you haven't checked out Built to Sell book, The Automatic Customer, The Art of Selling Your Business. And, um, you know, this is, this, I love hearing your insights on these, Jen. Uh, it was great. Um, let's do it again. I, 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 I was too long-winded. I should have kept my answer shorter because I know we've got a bunch of questions we didn't get to, but we will do this again soon. And um, hopefully we'll no, be able to do Yeah, some there were a bunch questions. of people just commenting on, they like one person commented, I love Andrew's story. They were rooting for him the whole way. And nice. And nice. Uh, yeah, this is, this has been great. So yeah. And, and so look, if, if any of these episodes are ones you want to kind of listen back to, or what, I think literally you can just put the, the person's name into a Google search bar, Built to Sell Radio, it'll pop right up. You can also just go to builttosell.com and uh, there's a button for radio and you'll see all the episodes in chronological order. And so the, the, the most recent four are the ones we talked about today. Jeremy, thanks for doing this. It was great to be with you. We'll see you again next month. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody. Talk soon. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. 
John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.